0: I think people need room to fail. They need room to learn. They don't just want to follow the list of the hundred things. But at the same time, you know, you want to give them the freedom to experiment in a safe way, so they're not, you know, uh, intimidated and, and they don't get discouraged or burn out.
1: Welcome to the Super Managers podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of Fellow.app. Today's guest is Daniel Sachs. He's the president and co-CEO of AppDirect and host of the Decoding Digital Podcast. Daniel founded AppDirect straight out of school at the age of 23, and today it's a global business and it's approaching 1,000 employees. He was recognized as one of the 30 under 30 rising stars of enterprise technology, and in today's episode... Dan shares why it's important to encourage failure and risk and allow for others to share their lessons learned. We also talked about what peak performance philosophy means and how your team members can perform at their best. Finally, Daniel offers productivity hacks and habits to improve cognitive capacity and shares his thoughts on the power. Of positivity. If you found this episode helpful to your leadership journey, let us know by sharing it on social with the hashtag Supermanagers. And don't forget to give us a five star review on your podcast app of choice. Now, without further ado, here's Daniel Sachs on episode 51 of the Supermanagers Podcast. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be here. There's a lot that we're going to dive into today. You know, just to sort of kick things off, uh, you started AppDirect when you were 23, basically right out of school. And in 2015, you were Forbes 30 under 30. And today you advise Fortune 500 executives on on software distribution. So usually we ask, uh, one of the questions we ask is, you know, who's been your favorite manager uh, in your career, but I don't know that you've, you've, you've had any coming straight out of school. So uh, have you had a favorite manager before this?
0: I was fortunate to do a ton of different summer internships and experiences when I was growing up. And one of the most memorable experiences is one summer I went with a friend to Australia and um, we worked on a ranch. Um, It was in Wagga Wagga, Australia. So think of like the Outback, think of Crocodile at Dundee. And my manager was Dean Han, and he was a rancher. We raised uh, hundreds of cattle, thousands of sheep, um, and he had the responsibility to take care of the land, take care of the animals. And I had like zero experience in 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 running on a ranch before that. You know, most of my focus was intellectual or um, you know working in uh, retail. When we arrived, it was just so fascinating because uh, here is this guy that you know r- wakes with the sun and lives for work. Um, and the first minute we arrived, he said, there's an easy way and a hard way to do everything here. And I'm going to teach you the easy way, but you're probably going to do it the hard way and fail. Um, and then you'll come back, you know, after failing a few times and you'll say, Hey, what was the instructions on that easy way? And I, I never forgot that lesson. Uh, because I find that when it comes to managing people, um, they can drive so much more ownership uh, if they have the ability to learn not just what to do, but how and why, um, so I think embracing risk and failure uh, in experiences and in grooming talent is so important because it gives them the context of knowing, um, you know, why there's a better way and, and how to how to do that. So Dean um, was just a phenomenal leader. You know, you think of like true grit and resilience and conviction and passion and respect for nature and respect for the animals. Um, so learned so many things in that summer. It was fantastic.
1: That's really interesting. Why is it that after like you think you've been told the easy way that you might still want to do it the hard way?
0: So it was funny. every you know, there's examples with everything. Like, you know, you had thousands of sheep and you have to inject um, a like a pill in the sheep's mouth, and it's super dirty, and you have to tackle the sheep, and you have to use all these different strategies. And of course, as someone who's doing this for the first time, I think, Oh wow! I could do this better. Or I could do this different. Or what if I try to, you know, bribe the sheep with with food, and then maybe they'll come up to me. Or what if I tackle the one sheep and have my friend, you know, take the other, so we can, you know, dual put in the medicine. And um, I think that those experiences and learning why it doesn't work gives you more respect for why there's process and why things are the way they are. Uh, but I think having some freedom and space and ownership early on in your career uh, to make mistakes is super critical. And what I've learned as a manager is you want to make sure that you give those opportunities to your team, but also in a way that's safe for you know, your business and your customers um, and also for them. So they're failing and learning, but not in a way that's catastrophic to your business outcomes. So we focus a lot on how we can enable our teams to have ownership on the ground, even at um, you know, early levels in their career. Um, but giving them safe ways and room to to fail.
1: Yeah, like everything is fully determined and and you might know the very, very specific course uh, to take by just like saying it all up front. Maybe maybe they won't really understand like the why and they'll miss out on a bunch of lessons that are harder to learn if, if they were told exactly what to do.
0: Yeah, not only that, I find, you know, people who are gonna take risks, who are gonna make meaningful change, who are gonna innovate, they're likely not the people who are going to follow a hundred rule instruction book and memorize it, you know, line by line. So uh, wh- what I've found in any endeavor that I do is that if I, you know, learn and fail and and learn why, I then have a deeper appreciation for the process or for the steps that go into driving an outcome, and we can continuously refine and make it more efficient. But at the speed of change in which business takes place today, you know, particularly in our organization we can't expect that we're going to write a rule book of a hundred rules on how one role does something. And that rule book's going to be relevant a year or two later. So instead we try to drive guiding principles. We try to give autonomy, Try we try to give space um, mentorship uh, to enable team members to quickly iterate um, in the, the face of you know, extremely fast changing environments.
1: Yeah, What drove you to actually just jump into starting a company straight out of school?
0: It's interesting because from the, You know, from the youngest memories I have, I always brainstormed different business ideas and wanted to start a business. And as I went into school, you know, I I kind of fell into that potential trap that people say is, oh, well, you need to get a 4.0 and then you need to go to an investment bank or consulting firm and then you need to go to MBA and then private equity and then based on that maybe you can raise money to start your business and, you know, but it's going to be hard and you're going to be making a lot of money. So maybe you won't want to take the risk. Um, So I think that there's this like conventional path that many people take. And I realize life is often about risk, but what was interesting is at the time I was graduating and uh, just so passionate about entrepreneurship, I was interviewing, you know, at many different investment banks and um, different firms on wall street, but at the same time was brainstorming ideas with my co-founder. We had spent, you know, years before, Um, you know, starting the business, just time brainstorming ideas, talking about founders we admired, talking about the types of values we'd want in an organization. Um, And at that time, you know, we started uh, having conviction that uh, cloud would be an amazing um, opportunity to democratize technology and to enable people at work around the world to have access to the tools that they need in order to thrive and compete. And we started to have so much conviction in this vision um, that we really started to, to question, like, does it make sense for me to spend three years of my life sitting you know, in investment banking or private equity or MBA when I know I can make a huge impact on the organization today or on the world today? And we tested it by saying, okay, if we put together a really good deck, do you think we can raise you know, angel round? And then from there, do you think we can raise a series uh, A? When you have that much conviction in an idea, it's very hard, I think, to tell yourself that you shouldn't do it. Um, so we really uh, drove at it hard and proved that we could, you know raise the capital and sell a first customer. and ultimately we went uh, you know, went and took it from here.
1: Yeah, to just get a sense of scale for. How big AppDirect is? How many people work there today?
0: Yeah, so we started an apartment with uh, two of us, and we're now approaching a thousand people around the world.
1: Oh, wow, that's incredible! What a journey it's been. So then I have to ask you. So you know, you you started with two people in an apartment, thousand people. You you were leading teams very early on. I I would imagine when you first started uh, that you made some mistakes. I'm 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 curious. What were some of uh, the early mistakes and, and the early learnings uh, in, in building up the team?
0: Yeah. So I think that um, you learn a lot and make mistakes. So I think the w- one thing in in anyone's uh, culture and ability in such fast changing environments is to encourage failure and risk and uh, encourage people to talk about it and encourage uh, a culture where people uh, share their lessons learned. But one of the things that I'd say um, is always a challenge is assuming that someone who comes in is going to be in that role for life. So when we had our first team of 10 people, you know, there was someone who did sales and someone who did biz dev and someone who did product. And because it was our first time at it, we kind of set this expectation that like this company is going to be huge in 30 years. We're all going to be running the company. And I think what I realized is that in a a fast paced environment, you need to really, identify a mission for people. Um, Reed Hoffman has a philosophy calling it the alliance, where you have an alliance with your team members where they come in for a mission for a defined period of time, and then they can find ne- the next mission at the company. But it's setting the expectation that, you know, you're not doing the same thing in the same way forever. John Chambers, uh, the the uh, CEO and chairman uh, for many years of Cisco, um, when I met him, his kind of number one piece of advice to me was, always look at and set the expectation that you need to evolve your leadership team based on the size and scale and dynamic of the operations that you're operating in. Um, So I think that uh, setting the expectation with team members that you're going to be in one role for a long time um, and that those leaders need to manage in order to progress in their careers, I think that is unfair to those team members um, because it sets an unrealistic expectation. And, you know, I think even today, what I try to encourage, uh, you know, the the organization is that there's a lot of, um, you know, importance in people growing in their career other than having to manage people. And I think it becomes a really dangerous trap when people evaluate their worth or success in an organization by how many people they manage or what their budget is. So uh, I'd say like the biggest, you know, takeaway that I have is, have a very defined period for a mission for everyone. Set very clear expectations and give very good feedback on how they're executing on that mission, and reward individual contribution um, and reward impact over just the number of resources or, or budget that the person has.
1: Yeah, I mean that's so interesting. So, what is a like what what would you say is an average, I guess, tour of duty length? Uh, you know, for people who come in at, at the leadership level. Like, is it a year is it six months does it depend on the stage of the company i think leadership
0: and senior leadership would be tend to be longer but when we were when we take the majority of people i would say two is too short and four is you know approaching uh, a long length so what what we've found is that you know people need to it takes a long time to ramp people up um, on an organization on a culture um so we really set the expectation that you know we want people to be here for a four-year commitment in terms of you know duration, uh, but in that period, there's the opportunity for them to have you know two to three opportunities to progress or to do something new. And I do think in order for you to gain competence and confidence and experience in any role, you know, being in the place for six months isn't worth it or isn't enough. So I do definitely encourage and set expectations that you know you want to spend the time in the role, you want to gain competence, you want to gain expertise, and then from there, there's opportunities to progress.
1: Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Certainly, there are people that that do make it right and and are able to to scale with the with the company and and uh, you know th- there's definitely like a lot of examples of that. So do you encourage those people through coaches or through mentors or like how can people still expect to grow uh, in that sort of role?
0: Absolutely. So we have many people who have been in the organization for upwards of ten years and um, you know, so, some more through, through acquisition. What I would say is that you need to empower people to, to have control over their careers and have the autonomy to do what they want and, and to lead and to have different experiences. So I think that's something that's important um, that the organization can provide. But I think a lot of it is also about the individual managing their own career and expectations. And one thing that I didn't recognize when we started is that burnout is real. Oftentimes an organization can be predisposed toward creating burnout, but more often than not, it's an individual that has a high expectation for themselves that can't step out of themselves and kind of reflect on when they're having challenges that can lead to burnout. So I would say that um, we've seen many top performers that have gone through multiple tours of duty and then face a challenge and hit a real burnout phase. and, And that's real. That can detract them. And in that case, it may be easier for them or for the organization for them to leave. Um, But one of the things that we've done uh, to really help minimize that is we've put in place what we call a peak performance uh, philosophy at the organization, where we provide a lot of enablement training and best practices around how team members can perform at their peak. And this includes trainings around mind, body, spirit, uh, underlied by habits. Um, And what we've really found, and and Nick and I, my my co-founder and I, you know, take our, ourselves as an example is that the more ability we have to transform ourselves and to think critically about our own uh, philosophies and management style and values and approach, uh, the more we can then be an effective leader to others. So we've really, really invested in uh, world class uh, experiences Um, To enable our teams across the organization to be able to focus on their peak performance and define what success means to them, define what risk means to them, define what burnout could could look like, um, and really be able to be much more attuned of elements of their performance, even outside of work, things including how well are you sleeping, how's your nutrition, Are you working out? What's your heart rate variability like? Do you meditate? When you're faced with challenge, do you freak out and get in an argument or do you stay calm and collected? So we really spend a lot of time um, and have a lot of capability to enable our team members to perform at their best.
1: Yeah, I love that, and and it's so amazing that you just very openly speak about you know just some of the realities and and what to watch out for and and create self awareness. I love that. That that's really cool. So um, I guess one of the one question that comes to mind that that I think is is related is that y- you must also have a tour. Like I would imagine you would have this concept of a tour of duty almost for yourself because your role probably has also changed many times since like being two people in a bedroom to to where you are today. What has been the most challenging, like in this whole phase? Like, was was there a particular point where you felt that, oh, God, I, I really need to up level or I really don't know how to do this? Or like what has been the most challenging period? Yeah. So,
0: so I definitely try to fire myself every year. And um, the more elegant word for that that I use with my team is graduate. So, you know, look at everything that you were doing last year and try to automate or graduate from there. And I think the amazing thing about technology is you can get more efficient per capita or per person in your organization versus needing to hire more people to replace yourself. So what I'm always looking at is, are there ways to automate the decisions that I'm making, are there ways to delegate the decisions I'm making? Are there ways to automate the technology so we can work in different ways? Um, and I really encourage our team members to, to graduate from one tour of duty to another as soon as possible. But a lot of that is you know learning how to you know operate in the role, failing, learning from those lessons, documenting them, becoming really competent, and then figuring out how to automate that and, and graduate. So there is a life cycle in every tour of duty that could apply to me Um, just as much as anyone in the organization. And what I've done is become maniacal about planning. I've gotten much more sophisticated in my annual planning cycles. And just as, you know, in, in leading organizations, you may have uh, three to five year plans. You may have, um, uh, you know, leadership offsites, you might have uh, objectives and key results, quarterly business reviews. I do the same thing for my personal life. Um, So I, Spend a couple of days, um, you know, in the fall, uh, normally October of every year, uh, really trying to reflect on, you know, what my accomplishments were, where I struggled, where the team was strong, what I can, um, you know, graduate from, and really then break it down into, you know, objectives for myself that are measurable. Um, And then I have a a methodology to hold myself accountable on a quarterly basis and biweekly basis and even daily basis in order to make sure that I'm trending and tracking um, and making progress. Um, So that methodology and framework, uh, I think, has helped me tremendously. But again, I don't think it's something that could be applicable to to everyone. I think people need to structure their own productivity framework um, that's going to enable them to perform at their best. And that's what this kind of peak performance um, philosophy is all about is how do you create a framework to identify how you can perform at your best underlied by great habits?
1: Hey there, just a quick note before we move on to the next part. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing one on one meetings. But here's the thing. We all know that one on one meetings are the most powerful, but at the same time, the most misunderstood concept and practice and management. That's why we've spent over a year compiling the best information, the best expert advice into this beautifully designed 90 plus page ebook. Now don't worry, it's not single spaced font, you know, lots of text, there's a lot of pictures, it's nice, easily consumable information. We spent so much time building it, and the great news is that it's completely free. So head on over to fellow.app/blog to download the definitive guide on one-on-ones. It's there for you. We hope you enjoy it, and let us know what you think. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds like you, you you've just almost like created this cadence. Like we talk about you know, business cadences, but, but you have this for, uh, for your personal productivity too, which is really oh, cool. Oh, for sure.
0: And I do, I mean, there's probably a hundred product productivity hacks that I could share, but, um, I'm mentioning it because it's, uh, propping up my mic right here on the desk, but I habit track. Um, so every day I have a list of things that I want to, uh, you know, set an objective for to create a habit. So essentially the way it works and I do this all manually, it's fun. I, I track a lot in automated data, but I also find the power of a journal is really valuable. I'll, you know, go away in October, set the high level objectives, kind of like you would with a company at a leadership offsite, typically keep it to three core objectives with different key results. And based on that, I'll recognize, Hey, there's certain things that I want to make sure that I'm able to do and reinforce. So on a monthly basis, I'm going to track to make sure that I've made progress on those objectives. And at the end of the night, I'll, you know, write my journal, highlight, highlight, you know, gratitude for something, and then I'll habit track, you know, examples of this could be everything from, Hey, I realized that I'm not flossing and I want to floss. So I'm going to habit <laughs> track flossing. Um, or it could be something like outreach where I recognize that, you know, over the last couple of months, I wasn't reaching out to um, you know, prospects or, or, you know, new people as much. So I'm going to send an email every day in order to get that check. Um, that's a cold email to be able to outreach, to, to learn from someone new.
1: Yeah, that, that's super cool. And so uh, I wonder how does this also translate, uh, like to the cadence of, of the company? Do you guys also do your annual planning around the same time that you do your, your personal planning?
0: Uh, definitely. And, you know, I, I think we were on a calendar year cycle. So um, it's similar where in, in the fall, we'll start our leadership offsite and, and budget planning and then flow through. Um, but yeah, it, it's I've really borrowed um, similar methodologies from work in my personal life. And, you know, it's interesting because you could look at me and say, oh, wow, that's so business or that's so, um, <laughs> you know, uh, structured. But I'd say it, it actually It's like a rhythm and you just get used to this rhythm and it becomes somewhat second nature, Uh, but it's a great way for me to appreciate um, the uh, accomplishments that I've had and the things I'm focused on um, and a great way for me to prioritize things, not only in work, but outside of work uh, that I want to be able to get better at or improve.
1: Yeah, you're right. Like it becomes second nature and then it's actually... I almost feel like it's a, it, it's it's almost like a freeing thing. Like you don't have to think about it. It's just, Oh yeah. Like it's that time. That's what I do at that time. I don't have to think and you don't have to make decisions uh, like every second of every day on like what to do next. It's, you know, there, there's a rhythm. Like you said,
0: that's exactly it. There's a great resource on this. His name is James clear and wrote the book atomic habits. Um, but it's exactly that, that, you know, you can fall a uh, victim to decision fatigue but if you can automate a lot of capabilities in your life, then it becomes second nature, and it's you know really easy. Um, so you could do a lot of things that you love um, really well without having to put too much uh, cognitive capacity to it, and that allows you to spend time doing the things that you you want to do great. An example, you know, of this is a few years ago, my wife brought me to what was called a sound bath or sound meditation. Um, so you're in this room. There, in this case, it was a beautiful atrium at the conservatory, um, and it had probably hundreds of people. And it's fairly cult-like. Everyone's lying on the ground with headphones and um, uh, or, or eye masks or whatever it is. And then people um, are there's like a, a meditation bowls um, that really uh, put your your mind at a certain frequency, so you're calm and having to meditate. This was my first experience with meditation. And after seven minutes of the 90 minute session, I'm like freaking out in my head. I'm like, what is this? Why am I here? I have to leave. And I'm just like, there's talk in my head, it's just constant, like, what's going on, how, you know, what's going on with work, blah, 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 blah. And then I realized, oh, I have to pee. And then I, I think like, oh, but do I go, go up and interrupt the hundred people here, or the hundreds of people here to go pee? And I'm like, should I go pee? Should I not? And in the meantime, I'm thinking that this whole session's going by, but it was maybe going from like seven minutes to 10 minutes. I like freaked out, left, went to pee and said like, I'm done. And it was interesting because it showed like how, A, um, uh, unable I was to be present and calm in my own head. Um, but as I, you know, learned about the power of meditation and cognitive psychology and being able to calm the mind, I realized that that was a huge deficiency of mine. And I used this concept of habits to just get better at it. And, you know, the first year, my goal was to just try to med- meditate. It was to put on a, a, the calm app for 10 minutes every day, set the goal of 300 sessions. So it wasn't literally every day. But that first year I did it and I struggled with it. You know, sometimes I wouldn't even, you know, I'd be multitasking and doing it. But just getting in a habit of 10 minutes of meditation um, enabled me to gain a stronger competency and cognitive ability from a habit perspective to just kind of take that 10 minutes for myself. And then over the years, I've gotten way more sophisticated to where, um, you know, a couple years ago I was in a theta state for like an hour um, and I was in a similar sound bath where I was just in a... A state of like a trance and kind of like calm. And I, you know, it just like the time flash by total flow. And now I'm able to replicate that, you know, to solve different problems. So I'll go on productivity walks or I'll go in nature and I'll meditate and I'll think about nothing, but then literally there'll be like a rush of ideas that I can capture. And it's also enabled me to be much more present husband and father. Um, so it's just an example of, I think habits can take something that you're so bad at and uncomfortable with and over time, make it second nature to be much easier. I always think like going from zero to one is very difficult. But if you can break it down into tiny habits uh, that enable you to get closer to your goal, that's way more effective. The reason why I brought that whole example up is that I think with management, it's the same thing, that if you take someone who's never done something before and your expectation is, hey, you're going to go from zero to one you know, from day one, it can be really challenging, and you can put someone out of their comfort zone. Where when they do, you know, take a risk or stretch, they fail and they don't feel strong enough. So I do think, as a manager, you have to break down success into little habits, um, and that's why I always come back to Dean Hand, the Australian rancher's advice, um, because I think people need room to fail, they need room to learn. Um, they don't just want to follow the list of the hundred things, um, but at the same time, you know, you want to give them the freedom to. Uh, experiment in a safe way. So they're not, you know, uh, intimidated, and, and they don't get discouraged or burn out.
1: That is super valuable. And um, I, I guess it, it also relates to something that uh, you had a quote in Forbes, where uh, you said, if people had opportunities to hear from others, not only about successes, but specifically about challenges, it would be tremendously valuable. I'm curious at AppDirect, like, how do you guys make it so that you're not only talking about successes. Like, is there is there like do, do you ever celebrate failures or talk about them or how do you make sure that people know it's okay to try crazy things?
0: Yeah, we really try to institutionalize lessons learned. So having a framework for the way people can describe their post mortem or what went wrong or their learnings, um, and we encourage people to do that in team meetings, in quarterly reviews, in town halls. Um, but what I found particularly important is that you have to model it as a leader. And, um, in the early days or, you know, I'd say better part of the decade, you know, I wasn't the best at truly showcasing challenges and vulnerability. It's not just about the what, so it's not just saying, here's what I tried, here's, you know, what I, why I failed or what I failed at. And and that's it. It's about taking them on the journey of your psychology on how it was hard on you and how you didn't feel comfortable and how it made you feel. So I think the more you can, as a leader, tell a story that's very vivid and personal and um, showcases the uh, cognitive challenges and the emotional challenges beyond just the work challenges. I think that's when you really start to create a organization and culture where people feel comfortable talking about failure. The other thing is that um, you can preach that we uh, encourage people to take risk and and fail, but the second you, uh, you know, uh, chastise or criticize someone for a failure, um, or shame them, or whatever it might be, essentially, you, you lose all trust and ability to be able to encourage a culture of sharing the, the lessons learned. So I think training managers and having checks and balances that, you know, that that it is okay. And that, 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 you know, one statement from one manager in your organization that makes someone feel uncomfortable for a mistake they made, essentially detracts from years of promoting an open uh, culture of lessons learned. So I think really trying to to train managers on that is really important. Um, a good reference there is definitely um, Reed Hastings' book from Netflix, um, No Rules Rules. I think is a great um, insight uh, to um, transparency and uh, and how to learn how to really cultivate a culture through empowering managers uh, to to kind of be authentic.
1: Yeah, I I agree. That was a that was a great uh, great book. We're talking about people. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on hiring. You know, one of the interesting things is because you've hired so many people, you've also had a chance to figure out like when you hired the right people and and maybe when uh, you didn't hire the right person. I'm curious, like what advice do you have for people when they're looking to hire? What are the major takeaways after hiring so many people?
0: One thing is that there's incredibly talented people out there and just because they may not be successful within your organization doesn't mean that they're not great talent. So we've had you know many app directors who had maybe not performed at their best year, but have performed phenomenally in other organizations and vice versa. I think that good hiring is all about being transparent on your values, on your working norms, on the culture, um, and really giving the candidate an opportunity to see what it truly is like, to see if it's an organization where they can thrive. What we really tried to do was figure out a way to Um, see through the data um, what would enable someone to be successful here over a longer period of time. We we looked at data sets in people's resumes and then top performers at UpDirect and uh, others who maybe weren't so successful. And we tried to look at algorithmic correlations on what makes someone thrive versus another person not. We put together what we call our aptitude assessment, which is a methodology to evaluate talent um, in the interview, you know, using a resume or LinkedIn. And this qualifies from them for the interview. So it doesn't mean that, you know, they can't be hired or they can be hired, but we use this assessment criteria to say, you know, are you qualified for an interview here? And then we can assess other elements when we interview you. And what I found is that created... Um, a great alignment to train our team members on what we look for and our philosophy to rewarding excellence and defining excellence. For us, what we definitely found uh, some of the strongest correlations were you know in your past roles or career, um did you have longevity and were you promoted or recognized for uh, for success? Um, so that typically is the strongest correlation that we had um for someone being successful here at a very long period of time. But there were other things that were you know super interesting. you know, things like, uh, GPA in school or, you know, were you an Olympic athlete or did, did you play professional sports or were you professional, you know, uh, gaming, uh, you know, leader or anything? Um, those types of things, what we recognize is it's less about the activity, but more if you were elite at what you did, it meant that you strived for excellence. So therefore you could have a higher chance of reaching excellence in our organization. So I think that that has created a much more meritocratic format for us to encourage, um, a diverse pool of uh, of team members um, that uh, really would have a higher chance of succeeding here at UpDirect.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. That that uh, yeah, you you go through that level of uh, rigor on on hiring. Uh, you can tell that it's a very important part. I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier, which was just being you know, very clear about, you know, values and, but also expectations. So like when you look to hire a leader, say that like you're, you're, you're looking to create a new part of the organization or there's a new project or, or, or something like that. Um, and, and if it's something that you've never hired before for, how how do you make sure that you're, you're going to be able to hire the right person if you, if you haven't, so if you've hired a role, you know, maybe, you know, a dozen times, you've seen good and great and you've kind of figured that out, but what if it's something new? How do you how do you make sure you're doing the right thing?
0: Yeah, great question. So definitely the um, aptitude assessment that we have is about rewarding excellence and identifying great talent regardless of role. So I think that's a base to qualify you for an interview. One story that, that we have is that when Nicholas and I started the business, we didn't have technology backgrounds. Um, and we said, okay, in order to build um, a global subscription commerce platform to enable businesses to access cloud, we need to have a technical co-founder on the team that has a competency in certain capabilities. And we researched, like, what would it take to build the tech platform for cloud? And we knew that commerce was important and that multi-tenancy was important for SaaS. And we knew that, you know, being able to deploy on uh, industry-leading infrastructure like AWS US was important, and we knew that um, you know because we were younger, having someone with you know more years of experience uh, could be relevant. So we created a really long list of criteria that we thought would be relevant to discuss from our research. We then validated it um, with other leaders in the field, and you can also use interviews as a methodology to validate your. You know, role description. So, if we're interviewing a CTO, we could say, you know, here are the things that we think is important for what we want to build. What do you think? Um, And they can tweak it, and you get smarter as you're interviewing more people. But what was interesting is we created a list of probably a hundred or more people that fit the criteria. There weren't many at the time, Um, and at the top of the list was someone who had, you know, most of the capabilities, if not all, who was Andy Sen, who had built the Salesforce App Exchange, which was the first. App exchange of its time uh, built in the cloud and previously had worked uh, enabling a Walmart's commerce platform in in the 90s. Um, so really uh, from creating that list and refining it with other uh, interviewees, it gave us confidence that um, you know that this was the perfect person and when we had the opportunity to uh, work with Andy and bring him on the team, it created uh, an incredible outcome and, and he's uh, our, our CTO uh, today. So I, I, st- I still think like in terms of role of a CEO, one of the most important things you can do is attract uh, the right talent um, and really be focused on talent. So, um, you know, when you don't know what you don't know, which is a lot, at least in, in my case, um, you can learn a lot from talking to others and from creating uh kind of rigorous criteria and then getting validation of that as time goes on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's super interesting. And, and that's amazing that he's still your CTO today. So uh, definitely a good hire there. Um, so Dan, I have to ask you about one more thing. So I mean, you know, I get the sense that you're very, like, you're very thoughtful about the way that you spend your time. Uh, it was really cool to hear some of the examples and productivity hacks and, and cadences you've implemented. But a- another thing I know about you is that you are generally a very positive person. Uh, and you take being positive very seriously as well. So I'd love to get your, your, your thoughts on that. Um, and like practically speaking, uh, how does that impact, uh, you know, what you do day to day?
0: Yeah, no, when we started the company, we created five core values, one of them being positive mental attitude. And I think a really important one. Um, and then even my vows to my wife at our wedding and our family values are positive, present, grateful. Um, so really, um, you know, I try to do everything I can to stay positive. And I think um, positivity is a hard thing because everyone's going to go through ups and downs. And the one thing I always share with my team is that um, values are, are not something you have or you don't, you have to work toward them every time, all the time. So I've had many moments where I might, you know, not be positive or I might be negative or maybe having challenges. And I think it's important to be self-aware, to articulate to your team, you know, I value positivity, but look right now I'm, I'm struggling with this and, um, you know, please empathize with me, but this is, this is a hard one. Um, so, you know, I, I I think that it's pretty easy and easy for me, it's a simple value, but it's that, you know, you have only so many days, months, years to spend in your life And um, it's more fun to be positive. And why not spend time, um, you know, uh, looking at things with a a glass half full and um, learning from people and being curious. So I really try to bring positivity to everything I do. That being said, um, you know, there's many moments where uh, there are challenges and where, where, you know, it's easy to revert to negativity. So I think valuing and keeping that value at the forefront is what enables um, me definitely to to kind of realize okay self check you know you're 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 not positive right now why like are you not having fun is there something wrong like how do we get there how do we share with others the the struggle so they can help you along the journey as well
1: positivity and and just like that that energy around it is also a i mean it's contagious right so would you ever cancel a meeting if you weren't like in the right headspace good question um you know what i probably This is, you know what? This is very insightful.
0: I'm self-reflecting now. And I would say that I probably should cancel more meetings because I'm like yesterday, for example, because I tracked my different biomarkers as well. I knew I had a really bad sleep. I knew I was, you know, struggling with my like mindset. I, in my meditation that day, it just didn't go great. And there was a thought that crossed my mind saying like it was an internal meeting, you know, with, with team member, but, um, or with a few team members and I kind of turn the video off. I wasn't present. I was kind of like stretching or trying to like relax, but it would have been way better in retrospect to just cancel that meeting and say like, Hey, look, I'm, I want to be, I want to take this half hour to really perform at my best in the next day. So, so maybe that's a good, good lesson for me. Thank yeah.
1: you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Dan, this has been super insightful. I mean, there, there's so many le- lessons uh, all across the board. You know, I, I think like uh, one of the things that, that we we kind of hinted at was this concept of, because because you have a podcast a, a, as well, uh, which is uh, called Decoding Digital. Would love for you to tell us about that and like why you started that and, and what it's all about.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. So, what we saw over the um you know the last decade of uh, working with many enterprises and many small businesses and many um, technology companies around digital transformation is that um, transformation is actually not about the technology it's about the people there's a certain set of characteristics that led our customers to be successful and it included things like vision and foresight and um, ability to take risk and um, conviction and all these characteristics, um, you know, we thought are so important to uh, encouraging a next generation of people who can digitally transform. What was interesting is the successful transformations at work always came down to these people who led a successful transformation of themselves um, through through kind of sharing in these characteristics and being self-reflected. So what we wanted to do is A, be able to highlight these people And um, at our conference for many years, we had given away uh, Digital Heroes Awards to reward um, those leaders uh, amongst our customers and community to to recognize them for the efforts that they've made to digitally transform their organizations. We really thought like, wow, there's so many amazing people out there and stories out there. What if we could capture it and share it? Uh, So last year, we introduced uh, Decoding Digital Podcast. Excited to have you as a guest as well. Um, And we feature uh, transformational leaders that are changing their respective industries Uh, really speak to uh, the characteristics behind these transformations. And what's interesting is that a digital hero can take place anywhere; they can, you know, come from any background. They can be at any level of an organization, but it's really these shared characteristics that that make them um, transformative. Um, so we really dig into the insights uh, of what drives uh, these heroes to transform themselves, and then ultimately their organizations.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's super cool, and uh, excited to be on on the show, <laughs> Dan. We, we've talked about a lot of things, uh, and and again, like very wide ranging and so many insights. But one of the questions that we we ask every each and every one of our guests is for all the managers and leaders out there looking to get better at their craft of managing and leading people, are there resources, tips, or, or just words of wisdom that you would leave them with?
0: Definitely. So there's a book that is not necessarily in wide circulation that someone told me about, like almost like a folktale when I was at South by Southwest years ago. And um it, it's called Leading at the Speed of Growth from the Kauffman Foundation, and it essentially charts different um, phases of leadership depending on the growth and scale at the organization and highlights pitfalls and lessons learned um, at each phase. And that was like an incredible textbook uh, for me in order to navigate uh, the differences in, in evolution of how I need to lead. So I really would encourage that to any, um, any of the listeners here. To check it out, you might have to buy it on eBay or or, uh, or something like that. But it's called "Leading at the Speed of Growth" by the Kauffman Foundation.
1: Oh wow, cool! Yeah, I, ha- I hadn't uh, heard of that one. Uh, definitely, will we'll, we'll yeah have to acquire it in whatever means possible. Dan, thanks so much for doing this.
0: Definitely, well, thank you for having me, and uh, really thrilled about what you're doing. I think that. Part of being a super manager is definitely learning from others. So your podcast is just so phenomenal, inspirational and uh, really helping managers thrive. So thank you.
1: And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the super Managers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.